Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I wanna welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Bill Resnick from Empirix. Bill, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Good morning. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. So uh, here's the, the game plan. What we seek to do here on this show is, is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and uh, improve value for their employees, so, which basically means we, we try and debunk some of the nonsense we're being sold by the healthcare industry and, and give our audience uh, meaningful tips on how to actually lower their costs. Sound like something you want to help with? Sounds like a plan. It's what we're all about. Love it. <laughs> all right. So uh, just to get us going here, I'm going to read a brief bio about uh, you and Empiric so the audience has some context about who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into it. Bill Resnick is currently the chairman and CEO of Empiric's Health, a revolutionary pharmacy benefit management company serving the pharmacy benefit needs of employers and Taft-Hartley funds throughout the United States. Prior to founding Empiric's Health, Bill co-founded Solid Benefit Guidance in 2005. Solid Benefit Guidance is a national pharmacy and employee benefit consulting firm serving health plans, Fortune 500 clients, and Taft-Hartley funds. Bill sold Solid Benefit Guidance in June 2015 to Arthur J. Gallagher. And prior to founding Solid Benefit Guidance, Bill held senior positions at several local and national health plans, including General Manager for Medco Health Solutions, Vice President of National Account Sales and Account Management for Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, and a Senior Benefit Consultant for CODA KVI. Bill graduated from State University of New York at Brockport in 1990 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Business with a concentration in Marketing. And he later went on to receive his MBA in Healthcare Administration in 1998 from Baruch Mount Sinai School of Medicine. There we have it, Bill Resnick. Uh, good morning. Thank you. All right. So quite a bio there. You've been in, in the business for a while now. How did you originally get into the, the healthcare industry? And, and it looks like, you know, starting at Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, you made a transition into, uh, into the pharmacy portion. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your entry point into uh, this industry. Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Again, so been uh, been at this for about 27 years and started in probably the, the most aggressive form of managed care, which was U.S. Healthcare and HMO that Aetna bought back in 1997. It was a strictly capitated, quality-based HMO product here on the East Coast that ultimately kind of scattered throughout the United States. But one thing that you know attracted me at a, at a young age into the healthcare and into the managed care space was that, you know, looking back and watching parents and grandparents and and just recognizing um, and studying this in, in college, both at the undergraduate level and then graduate level, that there is clearly a, we have a broken healthcare system. And obviously 27 years ago, wasn't broken to the magnitude that it's broken today, but from a relativity standpoint, there were certainly some challenges with it. So watching the managed care side of things, uh, and then moving into more what I'd call the indemnity or PPO space with the blues, the big challenge and, and transition for me back in that day was that day and time was that all of a sudden, I went from this capitated, quality-based, you know, environment to fee-for-service and discounts. Everything in the blues world is typically a discount off of something, and the blues have the best discount, so to speak. I'm, I'm obviously uh, paraphrasing a bit here, but the point of the matter is, it, you went to an environment where you were getting credited from one point where there was risk to another point where it's a fee-for-service environment and great discount, perhaps, but the more services and units that you drive, 
doesn't matter how good the discount is, you can't make up for you know, paying for unnecessary utilization. So at the Blues, um, spent six years there running national accounts and growing the practice. And, you know, we had we had done some things that were a little different than I think other Blues around really wrapping some, you know, healthcare related programs around the network side of the house. So took it to more of a care management approach, which is which is why I made the transition in the first place. And then watching what was happening on the prescription drug side of things, I um, had the opportunity to join Medco in 2005, uh, 2004, excuse me, uh, and stuck around there for about a year and a half, long enough to really learn uh, the insides of the PBM industry, which as much exposure as I had dealing with large self-funded employers like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and IBM and Verizon, prescription drug was really a mystery. Um, And candidly, it took me a year and a half inside of Medco at a very senior level to really get underneath the covers and understand what was really going on in that space. And um, that really, I guess, drove me to my next portion of my career, which was consulting um, with the thought of having this industry knowledge, uh, myself and one other uh, professional who I'd worked with at Empire. He was a Price Waterhouse guy. I was more of the kind of market facing guy. We thought if we put our heads together, um, you know, we can try to solve a lot of the challenges that more so mid-size employers and then predominantly on the pharmacy side, self-funded, you know, plan sponsors and uh, health plans were struggling with when it came to RX. So I went down that path um, for a good solid 10 years and, and worked with just that, both plan sponsors as well as health plans from Blue Cross of Hawaii, Michigan, Molina, out in California to Blue Cross of Florida and every Medicare, big presence in that space, uh, as well as employers, PepsiCo and Pitney Bowes and Canon and and what have you. So really got a chance to see the pharmacy side of the industry. Again, had the inside view of it and then really got the complete market view uh, from doing all this work, both again with health plans like a Molina that think very differently than how PepsiCo would think, obviously. Sure. But at the end of the day, quality and cost were two two drivers. So anyhow, that was kind of the quick background of it. And it is a passion of mine. Um, I don't have a passion for golf, although I like it. Uh, the healthcare has kind of become my baby, and I try to practice what I preach, and thus uh, move me over here to Empirix to uh, to start something that truly was revolutionary and transformative. Before we get into the your specific product and service, I want to just um, have a little dialogue, you know, about the industry at a macro level. You know, when I think about prescription drug pricing um, and and how we pay for it through insurance, you know, it's probably one of the most misunderstood and, in my opinion, blatantly corrupt components of the healthcare cost equation. So in, in your opinion, you've been doing this, as you said, a, a long time. You know, what do you think is wrong with healthcare in general today and, and then specifically the prescription drug component of healthcare? So I think it goes back to the early stage where, you know, I mentioned that's why I kind of kind of went off a little bit on a tangent there about the managed care side of things and risk and alignment to more of a fee-for-service type environment. Uh, you know, look, everybody's looking for, you know, better discounts, better rebates, better, uh, you know, a better mousetrap, so to speak. However, the current state today, uh, especially for self-funded plan sponsors, I mean, when they buy a prescription drug benefit, they're buying it either through a third-party PBM or they're buying it through a health plan. Um, either one of those entities, and, and I am generalizing here, there's a, there's a very small handful of health plans in the country today that actually take the same approach for their fully insured business as they do for their self-insured business, meaning really focus on high quality, lower net cost. Whereas even the big guys, the Bucas, and I'll, you know, stereotype and generalize there as well. They've, they've look at the PBM portion of what they sell to a plan sponsor 
in a very similar fashion that a PBM does, which is how do we maximize uh, the margin for our organization? And chasing discounts and rebates, uh, while that is the traditional methodology that most consultants use, I would say the lion's share of them in the, in the country, it does not make up for the inefficiency aspect. And the way the methodology works from a analysis standpoint, at least on the quantitative side of things, it's strictly based on discounts, rebates, dispensing fees, administrative fees, without any focus around what kind of drugs are on the formulary, what type of clinical programs are in place, what type of effectiveness, what type of alignment is someone willing to, you know, to, to basically take accountability for. Again, that, that part's missing from the evaluation. So the PBMs, unfortunately, have learned how to play uh, to, to that nature of the analysis so to speak. So got it. It's, it's a conundrum. Yeah. It, it goes back to all the fee for service. So the more units that you put through, even at a deeper discount cannot make up for the inappropriate use of those units. Yeah. We, we talk about that a lot on this podcast. And I think one way to sum up what you've, you've described is misaligned incentives. There's an inherent motive to maximize, you know, revenue and profit on behalf of the insurance carrier, the PBM, which isn't necessarily to the benefit of the, the payer or the purchaser. Correct. Um, not like from a quality. I mean, here, here's a classic example, Michael. I mean, there are studies that they're out all over the place now, um, and they'll creep out there. And, and obviously, those who have utilized, you know, one of the more prevalent drugs in the in the world, or you know, will probably experience this. Obviously, based on these studies. But a great example is Nexium. I mean, Nexium is a drug. It was like purple crack. Everybody was taking it. Uh, you know, depending upon the lifestyle that you live, depending upon you know, that your heating, eat dietary habits and what have you that, you know, the solution was I can eat a lot of fried food or, you know, not worry about, you know, eating certain things. I'll just pop an Nexium. And that became a daily way of living. But the reality is if you looked at Nexium and you looked at the actual FDA label, it said you should never take more than 20 pills during the course of a month. But yet physicians would write 30, 60, 90 day scripts for it and the PBMs would fill it. Now, pharmacy benefit managers should manage the utilization, which would say, hey, the FDA says, you know, and the label says this, just like taking, you know, 12 a leave a day is not going to be good for your, you know, <laughs> for your body. Same concept with Nexium. And now all these studies that are out there that people are, are basically, um, they're immune to antibiotics, right? So the superbug yep. is, is basically attacking these folks that were taking Nexium like they were eating, you know, candy out of a jar. And it's stomach cancer and an increased risk of death. I mean, there's a study just now that was published over 6 million veterans around Nexium utilization. It's, it's horrifying. So it's really, these perverse incentives are not just there. You know, there's a whole other issue around the financial end of it. Although I guess you could say all these added healthcare costs for those who get sick because of excess utilization is another portion of it. But there's a qualitative sure. aspect too that people seem to not pay as much attention to. Well, and, and I think, you know, what you bring up, you know, something to mind of, of, um, you know, something that I think gets lost on a lot of, um, you know, folks when they're evaluating healthcare is the, the drug manufacturers here, um, you know, <laughs> they, one might say that all of their, their collective actions, you know, including, you know, manipulating the FDA with questionable clinical trials, you know, the, what they do to extend patents and block competition, you know, creating expensive drugs from, from combinations of, of, you know, dirt cheap drugs, um, buying generic drugs so they can stop production and, you know, move volume to higher cost brand alternatives. And of course, you know, paying off doctors and researchers to endorse and prescribe, you know, medications of questionable value. I mean, some, one might say that these business practices are nothing short of criminal. Um, 
And so my, my question to you is, do you think PBMs in general are doing enough to protect payers of healthcare, you know, from the drug industry? You know, I, I don't entirely blame the drug industry. This is, this is, again, this is the infamous, you know, back for 27 and God knows probably 47 or 57 years, a hundred years, you know, again, it's these perverse incentives. It's, you know, we, we don't get paid to keep people healthy in our country. We get paid, paid to treat people. So, you know, there was an article uh, a few months back in the Wall Street Journal uh, with Dr. Miller from Express Scripts and one of their folks who run rebates was talking about, um, you know, the whole issue with Mylon, right, with the EpiPen and the increased cost of the drug. And, you know, the one quote that that caught me um, and I kind of chuckled at was, you know, ESI was saying they want appropriate utilization. They don't want misutilization. And I'm not picking on ESI. You can insert any PBM's name. But, you know, they want these drug costs to be lower and they want the utilization to be appropriate. At the end of the article, uh, one of the senior people from Express uh, said, while that's all true, let's face it, if I was in the snowplow business, I really like when it snows, right? I mean, that's how <laughs> right. I make money. So, so am I encouraging utilization? Am I, you know, I go back to, if you were to lay things out, and I learned this a long time ago when I was at the Blues, we were nonprofit and we were converting to for-profit. So we did all this training internally around you know, if, if something were to hit the front page of a local tabloid, right, regardless of whether it was true or not, the perception of that issue, that situation at hand, would that be, would that, would that create a stir? Would that go unnoticed? Obviously, it's on the front page. You would go notice. And I go back and look at these, you know, you touched on it, right? The combo products, the duexuses, the Movios, these products that are $40 of two ingredients combined become $2,000. Now, there is probably a, a rational use for those drugs in a very, very, very small percentage of the population. So if I have a $2,000 drug, which in essence is $40 worth of ingredients and a $500 rebate, okay, where is the clinical value for that product? I want to I utilize that in the, in the point in time when it's most appropriate, but it doesn't mean for the general population. And that was the issue with Nexium and the issue with so many of these drugs. So the, the problem becomes you know, when you lay these things out and you put them in the front page of a newspaper and you start to look at the math and the qualitative aspects of it, it's fairly frightening. And this is the part that I think PBMs and health plans, to some degree, they hide behind it. Because again, it's the perverse incentives. And the pharma, pharma companies are almost forced to kind of cr create, and I'm not defending pharma in any way, shape, or form, because shame on them for putting out a product like that. But if they have other people that are willing to help support the product, why wouldn't they put it out? Right. If you could sell a five hundred dollar bottle of champagne because people are there's a there's a market for it. And, you know, you put it out after people have had a few drinks and they don't really care. Then, you know, why not sell a five hundred dollar bottle of champagne? Everybody's capitalist in that world. So it really it's a very there's a there's a deep rooted problem, which is who's paying the bill. That's right. And who cares about the quality and the outcome of it? And how do you balance perception from reality? Perception well, being. You're going to manage the plan versus if I don't manage it, it becomes a runaway train. I saw a quote in an article I read last week, and the way that somebody described, you know, the health insurance industry is you're basically giving your employees a credit card to, to spend whatever they want. And they go to a restaurant and, you know, hey, the waiter's trying to maximize his tip. So he's going to suggest steak and lobster. And guess what? You've got this credit card where you can just get whatever you want. So you're going to get the steak and lobster. And so that's, that's where the disconnect, I think, is. It's, it's the employers who are actually paying for this. They're not really, they're not really cognizant or aware of what they're paying for. Um, I, I, have a, I have a real example of my father. My father's in Medicare. He's 77 years old. You know, he's a retiree from the city of New York, retired school teacher. He has this procedure done. He has a little side issue going on. 
And my mother says, oh, they're going to give a CAT scan. I said, this poor guy's had so many CAT scans. I said, you know, how about an x-ray? How about some other form of, you know, uh, radiology or imaging to, to identify this? Well, it's covered. We're just, you know, that's what they recommend. So we're going to do it. So I talked to my father after the fact. I said, Dad, there's two issues with this. One, you're going to light up like a Christmas tree in the middle of Rockefeller Center. I mean, this stuff is so, CAT scans are so, you know, you really want to limit your exposure to CAT scans, right? I mean, there's a heavy amount of radiology ultimately that does, you do get right. exposed to. I said, and secondly, I said, Dad, that CAT scan is probably upwards. That hospital probably built Medicare, I don't know, four or five grand for that CAT scan. I said, if you had to pay 50%, 20%, 30% of the cost, do you think you would have engaged in different dialogue? I know you'd, I know you'd cross the street if something was on sale at Walgreens versus CVS living in Florida. I know you'd go across the street for cheaper gas, three cents a gallon. Like, but he says, you know, back to your point, Michael, it's like he's not paying for it. So it is a credit card. But you're right. Uh, it's a credit card with an, typically an unlimited balance and no no ties into who's paying the bill from a quality or um, you know quantitative standpoint. Yeah. The, conund- so, the infamous conundrum, right? The misalignment across the board. That's right. That's right. So um, be- before um, before we get we dive into empirics in your own company, one last question I have. Uh, in a recent conversation with one of your your team members. Um, you know, she mentioned that there's no such thing as transparency with the big PBMs. Can you explain to our audience what she meant by that? Sure. So what is transparency, I guess, to begin with, right? I mean, that's the million dollar question. And again, I think if we ask, you know, the audience here, you know, how, how one would define transparency, if we ask 10 folks, you know, listening in on this podcast, I bet we potentially get 10 different answers. And it doesn't mean one's right or wrong. It's just there's, there's no universal definition of transparency. Just like in today's day and age, there's no universal definition of what a specialty drug is. So what one PBM calls a specialty drug over another could be very different. So back into transparency, you know, the, the, the reality is PBMs make money and health plan PBMs make money in a way that ultimately will not will, will prevent them forever being a complete open kimono, an open type of environment, whether it's in rebate. First of all, let me, let me just go back to the simplest form. So what yeah. does transparency? Transparency means that whatever I contract at the retail pharmacy and my retail network, at whatever the best rate is, and the operative word is best because PBMs can have multiple arrangements at retail. If I'm in a transparent environment, I want to know I'm getting the best, the absolute best retail arrangement that's available. And I want to be able to audit and tick and tie back into that. So that's number one. At mail order, that means that I understand the acquisition cost. And if I'm buying from McKesson or Cardinal or Amerisource uh, Bergen, whoever the PBM is, then I can actually see the invoice cost, right? I can see the actual, if you bought it in a thousand or 10,000 pills in a jar, I can understand at that unit level what I'm paying per pill. Uh, and by the way, just like many other industries, car industry and, and so many other, you know, worlds that live on rebates and other forms of incentive, right? Am I seeing the invoice? And then am I seeing any backend dollars that go hand in hand with it? In a true transparent environment, I'd see the acquisition costs, I'd see any true up settlements, et cetera. And that's both at retail and at mail. And then the same for specialty. Mm-hmm. When it comes to rebates, where you run into the oxymoron on this whole issue is that rebate contracts are highly, highly confidential and proprietary between the PBM and the pharmaceutical company. Remember, pharmaceutical companies don't deal directly with PBMs with the exception of their rebates and network positioning of their product. As far as the sale 
of a product from Merck, as an example, to an Express mm-hmm. Grips or Optum. Merck does not interface with, with Optum or Express Grips or CVS Caremark directly as it relates to what they pay for that pill. That happens between a middleman and a Merisource or one of the three main wholesalers. On the rebate side of it, that's actually a contract that's between the actual pharmaceutical company and the PBM. So back into that point, those contracts are deemed highly confidential and proprietary. So even though as a consultant, you may be able to go in and quote unquote audit the contract, you'll never audit 100% of them. And chances are you'll never see 100% of the actual agreement. So you're not going to see 100% of all of the arrangements you know, across the spectrum of branded products, sure. nor will you see the, the, uh, the real detail that sits behind them. I'm a former consultant. We did a lot of rebate audits in the day, and I could never sit there you know, and put my hand on a stack of Bibles and say, with 100% certainty, you are getting an absolute pass-through of every penny that's been negotiated between these two parties. So, you know, and and again, the reality when it comes to transparency is there should be alignment that goes hand in hand with transparency. And that's the part that really kind of skews the, the whole nature of transparency in the sense that the market rewards for volume and margin. And the way the PBMs and health plan PBMs have been structured is they have to basically create some type of perverse incentive to be able to meet the the way that they're viewed right? The way they're judged in the marketplace. So everyone seems to be chasing some mysterious trail. (laughs) Right. And and, and I think the way that the big PBMs are judged in the marketplace is by their quarterly earnings and, um, you know, how how much value they're generating for shareholders. So, you know, they're... And and it's tied tied to EBITDA per RX, right? So how much margin did you make for a prescription, adjusted prescription filled? And, you know, there's only one or two PBMs that you can really track that back to. There's a whole bunch now that exists that we know of. You know, the big three, two of the big three are not pure PBMs, right? One's a big healthcare conglomerate and the other one's part of a much bigger retailer. It's very hard to really understand what that looks like because it gets blended in their overall organization. So you, you get even further from transparency, um, whereas, it, you know, like an ESI, which is the real pure play PBM in the marketplace, you, you can dig into that. It's a little bit tougher to dig into the other big guys. Yeah. Well, I, I think it transparency to me is, is just, you know, getting, getting to, you know, what a drug costs uh, and, and what an employer is actually going to pay for it. And I think just, just in the same way that it's, it's challenging for, to determine, you know, what is an actual uh, medical procedure cost within a, you know, given carriers network, you know, it's just, it's the same challenge for um, an employer to understand, well, what does this drug cost, you know, in a, in a give, given, you know, retail network, let's uh, move on yeah. to, to your company. You know, you guys are a pharmacy benefit manager and, you know, one of many in the marketplace, um, but you're, you're fairly new. You guys just launched in 2014. So uh, give, give our audience, um, you know, a description of, of how you guys are different and, and what problem, you know, your model is attempting to solve. Uh, thanks, Michael. So, so a few things, right? I mean, back into the earlier, you know, uh, went off on a little bit of a tantrum about my background, but, you know, back into the earlier stages of it, especially the last, we'll call it, you know, prior 10 years of my life in, in the consulting side of things, having the opportunity to work with lots of different plan sponsors, again, both employer, Taft-Hartley, you know, private, public, and then these large health plans. I really got to see the inner workings of all these PBMs and also got to see the inner workings of a number of health plans that were taking risk, right? So you look at, again, some of these fully insured Medicaid, Medicare, or just commercial fully insured plans who actually do care about getting to the lowest net cost because they sell a fully insured product. 
What I learned was there were two very different ways about going about managing a pharmacy benefit. One Mm -hmm. goes back to what we've been talking about, which is pure fee for service. Let's get, you know, let's develop a formulary. Let's tell a story about how well situated that formulary is. But then when you peel the onion back, you find the duexuses, you find the, um, you know, all these drugs, quote unquote, that really aren't highly effective sitting in preferred status because the more utilization that goes through them, the greater rebate or the bigger margin. It's the same conundrum conundrum with, you know, compound drugs back in the day. Why did they exist? They existed because they could exist because PBMs weren't paying attention to them. PBMs were making money on them. Um, the compound pharmacy was making money on them. The physician was making money on them and nobody was really managing it. it conversely, if you looked at a well-run health plan that took a lot of risk, like a Kaiser as an example, or a Harvard Pilgrim or some of these others, that had big blocks of fully insured business, what we noticed was that their formularies looked very different than the traditional PBMs. Their clinical programs were much more robust. And what do I mean by robust? They had criteria that ultimately would not allow somebody to get more than 20 pills of Nexium during the course of a month, 30-day period, because clinically it was inappropriate. So they managed to appropriate criteria where other PBMs would allow again, the 30. So when I compared those models and we started digging in and understanding it from a consultative standpoint, those PBMs, health plan PBMs, didn't often compete as well on the spreadsheet because they may not have had the biggest discount or the biggest rebate. Right. When we studied them and understood you know, what their per member per month cost looked like, and we did some comparisons to taking you know, business that was carved out with a typical PBM and we ran it through one of those better models, we would see a 15 to 30% reduction in cost. Now, discounts on the surface, rebates on the surface, were not driving that 30% reduction. They were probably actually costing a few points because they weren't as deep, but the mix of products looked very different. The utilization, the number of pills, the type of pills, the place where these pills are being dispensed, the, you know, the injectables, how they were being dispensed, how they were being measured and all that looked very different. So we ultimately sat back and said, you know what? I'm watching this plan sponsor market. I'm consulting to these folks. And the fact of the matter is, as a consultant, it's very difficult for me to look someone in the eye and say, you know what, we're going to work with your PBM. We're going to put a new program in to manage X, Y, or Z. We're going to help oversee that program. You know, yes, we can negotiate your contracts. Yes, we can negotiate rebates and discounts. And yes, we can get you close to transparent. But the fact of the matter is what we couldn't control for those plan sponsors was, as a former consultant was the ability to get the right clinical management and the right alignment. So we set out in, quite frankly, 2012, we set out really kind of post-ESI Medco coming together, which we were not fans of back in my prior life. I actually right. uh, got deposed by the FTC around that. I felt very strongly that I thought the combination of the two was a bad would be a bad outcome. And I think I've been pretty spot on, candidly, with not, not to toot my own horn. I'm, I'm more often wrong than right. But in that one, I was certainly right that you know, the consolidation of those two vendors would do nothing more than drive cost up, which it has um, over the last few years. But the fact of the matter is we set out basically to, to, to create a pharmacy care management company. And we do refer to ourselves more as a PCM than a PBM. At the end of the day, we think care, right? Care coordination, taking care of the member, working with the provider, uh, and then also managing the benefit. If clinically you shouldn't have 30 days, you shouldn't get 30 days. I mean, that's just a fact. That's evidence-based guidelines and protocol. So we set out to basically work with plan sponsors that you know were really more I'd call mid-market size. So we weren't. We don't serve health plans today. We're not in the Medicaid, Medicare market, even though we have a lot of 
you know, myself and a number of my other, you know, leadership team here have a lot of experience in that space. We focus on the plan sponsor that really doesn't have a place to turn to when they're looking for a solution that would bring them alignment, bring them the better qualitative and quantitative results, and ultimately respect that side of the market. Because mid-market clients in today's day and age, I mean, even even the IBMs and Verizon, they suffer with the big PBMs. I mean, the PBM model has become so... Um, there's been so much consolidation and, and you know, it's, it's there's three big leaders in the space that, you know, it's hard for somebody to move like an IBM or Verizon. Right. But at the same token, yep. you know, they don't. So the PBMs don't invest in service. So think about bringing that down to a 5,000, 3,000, 10,000, 20,000 life plan sponsor. You know, they're they're like a redheaded stepchild. Right. I mean, they're completely left you know on the sidelines trying to figure out what's going on with their plan. There's no customization. There's no. You know, there's no flexibility. It's basically the PBM's way or the highway. So that's really the that's the market that we've been after. Uh, we went live one one fifteen. Um, you know, we're growing every day, but we're growing in a calculated fashion because we're not going to chase spreadsheets. We we need to work with advisors like yourselves and others that see the total value and mm-hmm. are willing to to give us credit for taking risk in other ways than just a pure discount and a rebate. More, more so around an aligned approach, which says, you know what, as a PBM or pharmacy care manager, more importantly, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is so that I'm not just guaranteeing a, a discount or a rebate on a unit basis. I'm actually putting real skin in the game around your total cost. So I care about unnecessary due access. I care about unnecessary utilization, not just qualitatively, but quantitatively. Yeah. And we put our money where our mouth is in that regard. So we think, you know, we think we're making a difference in the marketplace. Uh, I say we think because we know we're making a difference because we look at the client's results um, as we've been growing. Uh, it takes time to, you know, introduce a, a real shift uh, mm-hmm. into the market, you know, with this type of approach. Because again, if you think about how all of our competitors are out there, you know, they talk about having all these programs, but when you start to peel the onion on them and you start to understand that, the formulary that a Blue Cross plan may offer looks very different for their self-funded customers than their fully insured customers. Why is that? Again, because it goes right back into that fee-for-service utilization, drive, drive, drive. So, you sure. know, when you kick the tires on our model, you'll see that we line up and we look a lot more like candidly like a Kaiser Permanente. We're trying, you know, we're trying to drive the things that are most important for it could be for your family, my family, loved ones, yep. right? We want good quality and we want the right cost. Yep. And we want so, to be respected and treated with respect. So that's how we look at the market. Let me ask you a question here that, you know, I think, um, you know, most people would, would, would be thinking about, you know, you, you know, you guys are, you know, a smaller PBM, right? Cause you're just getting started here. And so conventional wisdom, which, which <laughs> we don't really endorse here on this show, but conventional wisdom would, would have us believe that, that a small PBM you know, can't negotiate competitive drug pricing like a larger PBM. And so, you know, you touched on this a second ago, uh, but I want you to just, you know, restate it for the audience. Why wouldn't that be true? Uh, it, it definitely is true. So, so, so said differently, you know, if I'm one of the big three PBMs and there's three types, I'll use diabetes, right? If there's three types of insulin and as a large PBM, I'm going to eliminate two of the manufacturers and just work with one of them. There's no doubt that I'm going to get a deeper rebate and potentially a deeper discount, right? Because of the volume that I represent. So mm-hmm. it's true. Larger PBMs are going to get deeper discounts at retail and could potentially get deeper discounts and will get deeper discounts and rebates on just pure volume. So just economically, sure. from a scale standpoint, you're absolutely right. 
But but let me break something down for you real quickly. If I had a $300 drug, and let's say somebody's out with a 17.5% discount, and I'm out with a 16% discount, so I'm one point behind on a $300 drug. What's the differential in my discount versus their discount? Three bucks, right? One yeah. point of $300. They're, they're behind. I'm behind $3 on that prescription. At the end of the day, if qualitatively and quantitatively, I was able to get that prescription because I wasn't chasing the $100 rebate and I was able to get somebody to a more effective drug and a lower cost drug of $50, how could that deeper discount make up for that inappropriate utilization? And that's that. So the mathematics. It can't. The mathematics turn very, very quickly when you look at the total cost, but the market's been trained to look at you're 16, I'm 17. I'll give you another one that's really twisted. If a competitor has a $100 rebate for retail brand and we have a $50 um, rebate for retail brand, most consultants would take the historical utilization. They would say we have a thousand brand drugs and it would multiply the thousand times the you know hundred dollar rebate and they would multiply our thousand times the fifty dollar rebate. Mm-hmm. Obviously we're half the value in rebate. The reality is if someone's putting out a rebate that's that much greater, sure, part of it is from volume that they can negotiate better volume. The other part of it is that they're really confident that they're gonna have the brand utilization to support that big rebate amount. Number one. Right. Number two, our thousand uh, drugs that we've inherited from some other PBM that were brand drugs we're going to work effectively with providers, by the way. So we don't have to go after the member and put step therapy in and do all the things that typical PBMs do to, to change market share. We actually have our PharmDs, right? Our doctors of pharmacy call physicians to engage in dialogue to educate the providers, which by the way, doctors for all the schooling they get, they get one course in their entire medical training around pharmacology. And it's more about the clinical efficacy of drugs, let alone price and economics and all that. So we actually, we will demonstrate to providers and and ask them questions and gather information and engage in, you know, collegial type of discussions to say, see the bills on this drug, would you be willing to look at an alternative, you know, for bill based on X, Y, and Z? And if they're comfortable, if we've done our job to kind of prove why we think they should look at it, I'll tell you, we have a very, very high success rate in converting those. So there's a much softer way to go about it, but we're doing that in an educational way. We're doing it in a collegial way rather than taking out a hammer and just putting the member in the middle, which nobody likes, that creates noise, Mm -hmm. putting the provider in the middle, which they hate PBMs because most PBMs are fairly disrespectful. They don't think much of providers. They just kind of mandate rules without respecting their clinical insight. Mm -hmm. And we think the winning combination is taking this different approach, and that's what's moving the needle. We have a we have a lot of sensitive populations that we manage. I say sensitive, meaning they could be collectively bargained. Uh, they could be schools, municipalities, you know, places where people are not, you know, no one's overly excited about dropping in aggressive clinical rules. So we've had to build a different model, uh, and it's a model that we believe in, and it's a model that's cost effective and scalable. Um, to be able to make these appropriate changes. So we're getting around the spreadsheet differential. We're getting around the rebate differential of taking those thousand brand drugs and, and actually lowering them. So I know I just went off again, another one of my Bill diatribes no, here, but no, that's, that's, there's that's, a that's, hot level of passion around driving change in this space. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's good. And, and maybe I asked the wrong question. You know, what I wanted to reinforce to the audience is, you know, really, if you're just, if you're just asking that question, you know, of of dis, of the relative discounts and rebates, it's a trap question. You know that's what I want everybody to understand is that you're that you're missing a component of you you call it the drug mix. Um, 
I would say, you know, the formulary and, and, um, you know, what you're, you know, what you're allowing, um, you know, to, to actually be an option, the drugs that you're allowing people to select from, um, that can have a significant impact in, in the actual net cost, which at the end of the day is really all the employer should care about. It, that's correct. I mean, quality, obviously, you know, you can't be out there denying drugs. You can't be out there putting clinical programs in or having people walk away that need drugs. I mean, we track what you call rejects. So in other words, if there is a clinical rule, even for a prior authorization and a member doesn't pursue getting a medication, we track that because we want to make sure that that member, if you have MS, if you have diabetes, you know, if cost is an issue, if there's a challenge, we want to help the member overcome that. And that's where we wrap the whole service approach, you know, into the model. So you're right. It's, it, you have to look deeper than just the discount and the rebate. You have to press your consultants to, you know, to look at criteria, understand the differential and criteria. But, you know, all that's pretty tough to do, uh, regardless of how deep a consultant could be in the space. And that's why I go back and say, reduce it to the ridiculous. I, you know, I want to find a vendor that's going to align themselves, you know, both from a quality and a cost standpoint and put their money where their mouth is, where I can measure in a very clear fashion the type of guarantees and the type of alignment guarantees, so to speak, that they're willing to offer. So anybody can give discounts and rebates. My kids can sit there at 13 and 16 and do weighted averages and come up with rebates. <laughs> and That's the right. easy stuff. Actually putting a wrapper and putting real risk so that if the client spends more money, the PBM makes less money. That's the operative word. Client spends more that means the PBM has not been doing their job as a benefit manager. On the flip side of it, if the client spends less, then the PBM should be able to earn their fair share. All right. So let's, let's focus on that because in, to my knowledge, there is no other PBM in the industry that, that will go at risk. So let's, let's talk about that because that's unique. Explain what, the, what that means to the audience. Yeah, and let me let me just let me just say this because the audience may hear that there are some PBMs that are willing to go at risk on a given therapeutic category. So there's a PBM out there, I think, toting diabetes and hypertension that they're willing to go at risk in those therapeutic categories. That's I think that's a great first step. The only the only thing I see with that is when they just selectively pick therapeutic categories is that that in my opinion is like being half pregnant. In other words, you either are or you're not. You're either fully aligned or you're not fully like you're either transparent or you're not doing something part of the way does not does not basically give protection and alignment across the entire spectrum of your spend so our view is we look at a client's utilization we've developed a fairly sophisticated model that's been actually vetted by a large you know national actuarial firm and we when we spent a lot of time and energy developing this model it's called our rx efficiency calculator where it takes in the client's prospective utilization or their current utilization mm-hmm. and we run it through Therapeutic categories is 94, not to bore everybody with the detail, therapeutic categories. It gives us the opportunity to classify the drugs in the same fashion that our benchmark data is classified, which it's all through Medispan. So it's a very common industry you know, set of protocols because one PBM can call put a drug in one therapeutic category differently than another can. So we look again across those 94 therapeutic categories, and that's the magic word is to look across all of them, 100%. Mm-hmm. Specialty is not excluded, generics, not everything is in the mix. And we then look at that utilization on a cost per day, and we compare that then to the cost per day in our benchmarks, which come from well-managed health plans that take fully insured risk, right? Mm-hmm. That's so, but those are the ones I mentioned earlier that we thought were the real poster children of where you should, you know, if you want to emulate somebody in the marketplace, you want to emulate somebody that's got 
you know, great quality, you know, scores, high customer sat and, and cost effective solutions. So that's who we benchmark ourselves against. We, we buy that data from a third party. It's all blinded. Um, and then when we look at that, we will identify the inefficiencies. We'll see the 30 day Nexium scripts. I mean, Nexium is a bad example because it's generic, but we'll see, you know, 30 day initial oncology fills when you know oral oncology, high prevalence of having to change therapies, you know, a few days in, short fills are really important. We'll see, you know, uh, a, a, disport, a disproportionate amount of rheumatoid arthritis scripts. We'll see, we'll see that in a utilization. We'll, we'll not only see that from a benchmark standpoint, but then we actually have our pharmacists. So that's one part's well called quantitative. The other part's qualitative where our pharmacists go through the actual prescriptions. Because as an example, if somebody's on oral chemo today and they've been on it for a year and we see that in the data, we're not going to switch that patient. There's no management at that point. I mean, sure. we can have a discussion with the oncologist, but the fact of the matter is those are sensitive diagnoses. There's not a like, even if it was misprescribed in the first place, there's probably not a likelihood that we're going to get a lot of engagement from the provider. So, but, but we look at that utilization and then with the pharmacist would put that to the side. So we look at what we think is real that we can make an impact on by working with providers and educating members. And then we will literally go at risk for that number. And like I said, we see anywhere from 15 to sometimes, you know, 30% of a client's plan spend that's inefficient. And that's where we'll take a dollar amount and we'll go back to the consultant and say, if we cannot weed out this amount of money, we will pay the client back dollar for dollar. And it's been vetted, like I said, by Milliman. We have full details in terms of every transaction, every interaction, every change, every switch. Um, everything is fully visible. Our call centers are all, you know, every call is electronically monitored and digitally recorded. Uh, we have no IVR. We've made the service aspect really light. We make the reporting very visible. So we produce daily reports for our consultants, what we call mm -hmm. a flash report. And we produce a monthly oversight report card that shows basically a summary of the interactions that we've had, shows a summary of what's happening in a market, shows the client's you know, key trend items so that the consultant's aware and they can better advise the client and do it in collaboration with us. Right? We always work with the advisor. We think the advisor and the, the vendor combined with, with the client create the best combination for, for strategy and for results. So we do it in a very open fashion um, because again, we're, when we put that dollar amount at risk, you know, as an advisor, the only way you're going to be willing to accept that change in evaluation is if I make it very, very crystal clear for you that there's zero games, no shenanigans, and you can sit back intelligently, you can have it monitored internally, externally, what have you, and it, and it holds water. It stands yeah. true in the space. So, so let me, let me ask you a question about this because, you know, you know, the, the notion of a, um, of a guarantee, you know, is not unique in in PBMs. There's lots of types of guarantees, discount guarantees, rebate guarantees. But but ultimately, those can be manipulated, and and they don't necessarily get down to the per member per month net cost and how it changes from year to year. And so your your hard dollar savings guarantee is that on a PMPM PM basis, looking at what the spend was previously versus what it is prospectively in the future. Uh, that is correct. We'll do a few different variations of it. We'll do um, an aggregate where we'll look at the client's cost in aggregate and say that you will not spend more than X percent above that number and create some Carter. So it's almost like aggregate stop loss. Sure. Uh, we will take it down to a per member per month, which really is in essence a, a variation of an ag, so to speak. Uh, we're, we're not to exceed. Um, we will do uh, just pure 
cost reduction guarantees. Uh, but the but the key is understanding those guarantees, how they're reconciled, like you said, right? Everybody yep. can manipulate. So it's about having true visibility into the, the approach um, and understanding how somebody substantiates that. Like, like I said, I consulted for 10 plus years. I worked for a large PBM. You know, it's very easy, you know, when you're the one producing the information to basically put whatever you want in front of a consultant. If, if you have a relationship and you have a, a real, what I'll call a transparent way of doing business with somebody, which is what we as former consultants, I mean, there's a handful of us here that are former practice leaders in, in the pharmacy benefit management space. We, we basically have built a model that our fellow colleagues can come in, kick the tires, get the level of depth and understanding that they need to feel comfortable so that they are willing to basically help us in this transformation process. Because if we're hiding and playing games, and there's been a number of PBMs that have been in a marketplace that claim they're transparent and that they're passed through and they're, you know, we've all heard it. I heard it as a consultant. I'm sure you hear it and your team sure. hears it regularly. Everybody comes in with the new best thing since sliced bread. I'm not a, you know, I'm a trust you, but I'm a verify you know, right? It's always trust and verify. It's not just, you know, I'm going to trust you and take it on your word because mm -hmm. as a consultant, you never want to get burned. You don't want to put a client in a, in a precarious spot. So that's why our model is so open in the sense that you can see it, you understand it, you can feel it, you can touch it. Um, and guess what? It holds us as accountable as a day is long. And if we're, if we're not able to do it and if we're forced to do something differently, you'd know in a, in, a, in a second. And, you know, being a newer PBM, you know, some people look at us and say, you're new. What I would say to, to the market is, this is a fact. We are newer. I'm not going to deny that, nor can I. But secondly, we're not built and set up the way these old PBMs were built and set up. They're broken, right? We're like a Tesla. We're transforming in a zero emissions, highly efficient, highly sustainable model to deliver a clean PBM and you know, clean pharmacy benefit management experience. Yeah, uh, and yeah. we don't have to make we don't have to make eight dollars EBITDA per RX or whatever the blend is like some other publicly traded company that unfortunately is you know is serving their shareholders and clients come second. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. What's the I like the the uh, the cost guarantee or the savings guarantee and your ability to go at risk uh, because truly that's unique in the healthcare marketplace because there's there's not a lot of vendors who are willing to you know, guarantee cost savings for an employer. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a fabulous approach uh, for the marketplace. Uh, one thing I wanted to, just watching the time here, um, yep. touch on before we, we uh, you know, end the, the call here, you know, your team has indicated that your service model is a little different. It's more of a concierge approach. So can you give me some examples of how that might look and feel for an employee or the employer? Sure. I mean, actually, it starts across the board, right? So at the um, at the employee level, as I mentioned earlier, right, all our calls are digitally recorded. They're twenty four seven hour call centers. They're all domestic. That's kind of the cost of entry. Um, the thing that's very different, we have no IVR, so members get directly to a live customer service rep. Our customer service reps can make an outbound call. I mean, I sat on the phone the other day for over an hour with a vendor. Um, you know, one of the many uh, vendors I use when I travel so much and said, Hey, I didn't get, you know, credit for something. And, you know, they put me on hold for literally like over an hour. And, you know, they said, well, you got to check back in a few hours. I said, can you call me back? They said, we can't do that. So I said, okay, I'm going to have to go back and start this all over again. So to me, that's not concierge. Concierge to me is 
someone has an issue, if I speak with Mary at extension 103, I can call back and speak with Mary at 103 and extend, and Mary can make an outbound call to Bill to say, I've done some research on it, Bill, here's how we're, how we're doing things. So that's number one. So the call centers are set up in a, in a world-class fashion that really enables people to have a personal experience. They're also customer service reps are trained. Uh, we know the client's plan design. If someone is in a high deductible plan or has co-insurance, we try to help steer them uh, and educate them. Always the member's choice. But if we know there are two pharmacies within a mile radius and we know that the member can access that drug at a much lower cost from one over the other, we'll, we'll try to educate the member around that, as well as any pharma copay assistance, right, with high deductibles. If people are on a specialty drug and they may have a $500 cost for a specialty drug, we try to work with the manufacturers where they're basically giving away the money and try to bring that back to the member. And we demonstrate that, by the way, to our clients in that monthly report. So we show them how many of those copay assistance, and I'm not talking coupons that really skew things. I'm talking copay assistance where right. the member and the, the member and the plan both have to benefit in order for us to proceed. So that's at the member level. At the client level, um, what I'd say I think is really different is that, you know, service doesn't stop, right? So members can access a call center 24-7. The reality is if there's an issue that's, that is not able to get resolved at the call center level, our call center basically has access to our account management team. And our account management team operates like a physician's office, meaning they're all not going to be on call at every moment of the day or mm-hmm. after hours. But at any given point in time, there's always one to two, depending upon the, the nature of the time uh, of year, uh, at minimum, always one account manager who's taking calls that basically is on call. So what happens is, you know, think about it, West Coast, East Coast, Hawaii, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter if it's holiday weekend, you know, 4th of July weekend, long weekend, regardless, call goes into a call center, call cannot be resolved because it could be a scenario where the member didn't add their spouse, right? They got married and forgot to tell their benefit office. Well, the reality is that member needs medication. It's probably an expensive medication or it could be a low cost medication. doesn't really matter. The call center would notify our account manager on call. They have access. We use a CRM. We have a set of rules built into the CRM that says the employer is willing in a scenario around eligibility or birthday or things like that, where basically the system won't work. Our account manager can make an override. It could be for two days, could be for the entire course of the therapy. We typically will have thresholds that we build and we we understand during implementation from a client and consultant as mm-hmm. to what they're comfortable with. Or if it's a scenario where it's a high cost specialty drug and once you start it, you can't stop it, right? If somebody was starting a script for hep C or uh, oncology, hematology, we would probably reach out to the consultant at that point because we're not going to make that decision if someone's not in the system. It's one thing if it's a low cost antibiotic for two days. So the the service aspect of it is there's a problem. It's nobody's fault per se, or it's somebody's fault. It really doesn't matter. But a member's in the middle and that member come Monday is not going to be overly happy when they do get to their benefit office. Our objective is to take that aspect of it off the, you know, off the table and create a service experience that gives the, gets the member their medication that they need and then ultimately allows um, the plan sponsor and the consultant to you know, not have to come in on a Monday morning like you are today uh, and, and experience uh, a very unpleasant you know, member, uh, <laughs> member noise. So that's the other aspect. And then the last one is really at the consultant level. It's, again, it's working with our partners, our consultants, to keep them educated and informed. I mentioned a monthly report that's very robust, allows you to understand and see what's happening. The other element of it is, is a daily report that's only generated when there's something that requires generation. So if a new member started on a drug and it was an expensive medication, 
And we knew that it appropriately went through all the clinical protocol. You know, we would have to go through that, obviously, in our system. We would want to notify you as the consultant so that you can let your client know so that the CFO, the benefit manager is aware that, yes, the invoice is going to go up $30,000. Here's why. Here's how. Here's the extent of how long it would last. So there's no surprise. So the CFO is not calling down to the benefit office saying, why did our invoice go up? So it's trying to be proactive uh, in a way that ideally um, can take some noise out of the system and, and help make better decisions. Also, when there's a situation environmentally, like inflation or something else that is no one's fault, it just happens. And maybe there's a big chunk of utilization in a given product or therapeutic category, right? HIV drugs went from combo to, you know, to roll, went from individual products to, to a combo that has a large cost impact. It's a good quality outcome because it gets better compliance and adherence. But you mm -hmm. should know that if your client has that population and you see a 15% increase in that cost, it shouldn't come as a surprise when you sit down, you know, five months after the quarter's ended or three months or two months after a quarter's ended to go through what, what just transpired the prior time period. So we try to proactively, from a service standpoint, bring that to a head. Who would you say you're a good fit for? And, and who would you say you're, you're not a good fit for? Are there any size, employer size, or, or, or any limitations? I would say anybody who's looking to really understand what they're spending and how they're spending it and, and you know, really wants to kind of get underneath uh, the, the model and create a better quality and, and cost perspective for their, for their membership, their client, uh, excuse me, for their, you know, their, their employees and what have you. Uh, is a good fit for us. Somebody who wants to just focus on discount and rebate, not a good fit for us. They should go focus on the big three or whomever, you know, is willing to chase the spreadsheet. Uh, so it's really size-wise, our clients range from, you know, 40,000 plus to, you know, 500 and everything in between. Uh, we tend to focus more in that, I'll call that mid-market space, mid to upper market, um, because I think there's a greater appreciation and there's a greater level of neglect, perhaps, for that size client. Sure. So I would say that's the that's the target. It's those that really want to understand it and um, be part of transformation. Uh, and you know, look, I go back and always use that Tesla example. I got a Tesla early stage, and people said, "Wow, that's kind of." I'm like, if somebody doesn't adopt it, Tesla won't exist, right? So somebody's got to jump on the bandwagon. Um, it's actually been personally a good experience on the Tesla, and I think if you talk to any one of our clients. Uh, I think you would see that. And we often say from a reference standpoint, I can give you references all day long. I would share with you all of my clients and have somebody go out and pick the client that they want to call. So it's not a, a canned reference, so to speak. That, that to me is where the rubber meets the road. Are they saving money and are they enjoying the experience? Bill, if there's one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? You know, what does it take to get folks to look outside the box, right? How do you, you know, the chicken, why did the chicken cross the road? Because they crossed the road the year before. I mean, how do you, how do we... How do we get more clients, you know, willing and open to look at this? How do we get more advisors, you know, around the country as well, willing and open to, you know, to, to look a little bit deeper at, at, the, at this type of model? Well, I, I think uh, having conversations like this is, is uh, you know, one of the, a good first step. And, uh, you know, I think forcing the issue of getting people to understand that, you know, if you want better results than what you're getting today, then, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing. So you have to start <laughs> looking, looking right for, for other alternatives and, uh, and, you know, try to get a, a deeper understanding of, of the why. And I think, I think people are so numb to healthcare cost increase increases, you know, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, I think people have just, they've stopped asking why. And so I think if, if we can collectively as, as, you know, brokers, consultants, and, and, you know, experts in the industry start, instigating that question more, then I think we'll, we'll have more people to your, your question, you know, start, start looking at alternatives. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's a really exciting time to be in the space. And like I said, the thing that gets me excited every day and, you know, continues to, to motivate myself and our, our other professionals here at Empirics is that we are making a difference and we see it, we feel it, we hear it not only at the, again, the service and the, you know, you know, service level and client satisfaction, we see it in the cost. And, and and the fun thing is, you know, we've got a medical director on our team. You know, we, we've been able to move some some members from some of these drugs. Not only do we save clients a lot of money, but we're actually, this is the part that makes me the proudest. Money's great, but people's health are improving. I mean, we have one client, one quick situation here to wrap where yeah. member had been on a drug for two and a half years. A client was spending over half a million dollars a year for the drug. We worked and it was never prior auth. It was never validated. We looked at it. We said, this drug, this seems really awkward. It's a drug for infantile spasms in a 37-year-old patient. So we actually, we asked the client uh, who had asked us to grandfather everything, just take it as it is and let's, you know, let's get through the transition. We said, do you mind if we call the provider? And we called the provider and had a discussion doc to doc with the provider. And a provider said, no, I really never wanted that drug. But the medical vendor actually, you know, denied the other drug. This, this member, by the way, here's the interesting thing, has, has not had a full day of a full week of work in two and a half years. So not only is the client spending a ton of money, their health has never improved. They've been kind of kind of just in a you know, standstill pattern. We're actually sure. now the members, the members showed up since February every day, you know, for the last few months, five days a week showing up for work. They're productive, they're healthier, and the client's saving a ton of money. That to me is Xanadu. <laughs> that's perfection. So that that's what we're we're pushing for. Um, and that's what we hope to continue to, uh, to accomplish. So I thank you for the opportunity. You, you to bet. Participate. You bet. No, this has been great, great discussion. Um, real quick, Bill, um, you know, other, other than working, you know, with their broker consultants, you know, how can people interested in empirics, you know, get more information about the company? Uh, I would say, you know, our website's obviously a great place, www.empiricshealth.com. We have a lot of, uh, webinars and other things that we do and news blasts and what have you, but, uh, that would probably be the best way to go about it. Or, or more importantly, you know, I'd say ask an advisor like yourself and other, you know, other members of your team um, to come in and kick the tires. Awesome. Love it. All right. Well, hey, on behalf of our listeners and myself, really want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I think it's been a, a good dialogue and, uh, you know, I hope it uh, instigates a little, little thought for, for our listeners. Uh, to our listeners. Thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. You bet. You bet. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this, this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Take care, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Empirics' website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content and interviews we're bringing to you on this show. Please do leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher and let us know what you think. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.